Mark chapter 12, continuing our journey, backing up a little bit from last week. Last week we did something a little different on our first Sunday, Family Sunday. Uh, Thanks to Mark and Lauren for sharing in the message and the preaching on on the greatest thing of all that Jesus uh, taught on on love. We skipped forward a little bit in that story to look at that passage and fit with with some of the themes. Now we're coming back to this passage, and you can reserve whether this is the greatest of all uh, or what it is, but let me know later. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 and following. The Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, then the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. And last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. I was reading from the NIV, if it seemed a little different from your translation. I'm planning to return to love next week. I thought that would be appropriate on Easter to return to that greatest of all theme, come at it from a slightly different perspective with with the resurrection in mind. But these two themes, love and resurrection, as we begin this Easter week and we think of crucifixion and resurrection life, these two themes of love and resurrection, maybe the, the greatest, as we are, again, as preachers, careful to use superlatives, but maybe the greatest Two distinguishing marks of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Love and resurrection. More than just that we believe in these and we assent to them. They become our our highest values that then determine and influence how we live. In fact, they're at the core of our identity as we read the story of Scripture. And we see what God has done for us, his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's God's love for us. And until we receive and embrace his love, we'll never be able to return love for him and love for one another. As we looked at with quite detail last week and interacted on that theme, a theme that we should continue to interact on for the whole of our lives, always growing in. And we are meant to be resurrection people. Again, not just that we believe or come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as proclaimed, but that we believe in the resurrection of God, that God's identity is one of resurrection, of life from seemingly death, from nothingness, flourishing from barrenness. This is who God is and what he does and reveals himself to be throughout the story. So yes, resurrection is kind of a big deal. So Perhaps Jesus' perplexion, if you read into his response to these Sadducees who are challenging him, his, his borderline incredulousness makes sense when resurrection is at the core of the identity of God's people and the character of God. 
when he says to them, verse 24 and then 27, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You are badly mistaken. Now, a little bit of context. The Sadducees, we can remember, were sad, you see, because they did not believe in a resurrection. They believed that this was the only life there is. And when you believe that this is the only life there is, you have a couple of choices for the way that you live. You live with a relentless striving, a need to accomplish or accumulate or seize every moment. There's a scarcity mindset. There'll never be enough, and we must get as much as we can. And if that fails, or if you feel that that will never be your reality, then it can lead to the opposite side of that spectrum, a complete hopelessness of what is the meaning and what is the purpose then of, of life and living, if this is all that there is. The Sadducees were ones that believed that this was the only life there was. While they assented to the religious rhythms of being Jewish, they had found at least some purpose and value in reaching to the highest level of authority and influence within the Jewish community. Many of them would have, the Sadducees would have worked with the Pharisees upon the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court that we've looked at for a number of, a number of times as we've engaged this last recent series of challenges to Jesus. The religious court, the highest religious leaders really had final say in religious law and expression for the Jews in that time, in that first century time of Israel. The Sadducees, though, like the Herodians, uh, found favor amongst the religious, the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans. They often bridged the gap and were quite wealthy and esteemed and had privilege and had power. It seemed that possibly, uh, though we don't know a whole lot about the Sadducees, that, it, that their perspective of Scripture, of their, of their Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, was more literature or allegory, certainly some history telling their story, but they did not live it or apply it in the same way that the Pharisees did, believing that it was God's word for them, the living word of God to be adhered to. They took it more allegorically and applied it thus. And so it makes sense if you simply read scripture as allegory that to believe in the super spiritual or an afterlife uh, was, was hard to find on the pages of the Hebrew scriptures. There's only a couple accounts of rising from the dead. That's not a main theme that's proclaimed throughout the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, what happens after death, life after death, uh, is, is relatively minor throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And, and so it makes sense that one would say, either who knows or I do not, we do not believe in this resurrection, there's life after death. Now, Jesus had been coming and proclaiming a resurrection, his own. And so the Sadducees come to challenge him to try to get him to double down in this belief in resurrection, understand, believing that if, if he proclaims and, and, and reaffirms resurrection, who will believe him? Who will truly follow this, this man? He's a lunatic. Dead is dead. There's no resurrection from the dead. And all of the challenges that have been coming against Jesus by the religious leaders are trying to trap him and trip him up and ultimately make the crowds who have been following him and assenting to him as either the Messiah or as the king or a new, a new leader or a new rabbi and taking the attention away from the religious leaders. They believe that if all the people would truly hear 
Jesus proclaimed the resurrection. Maybe they'll doubt him, distrust him, or start to dismiss him and return their attention and affirmation of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, though at times those two groups were at odds. Here again, they're willing to work together to remove Jesus in any way that they can. I, I think it's remarkable the way that Jesus responds to them in rebuke, you do not know the scriptures, is a harsh rebuke for the Sadducees as it would have been for the Pharisees. No one knew the scriptures better than them. They would have had large portions of the Hebrew scriptures memorized word for word. That would have been their religious Hebrew training growing up. At minimum, the first five books of the Bible, and if you have a hard copy Bible, you can even flip through from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So to the end of Deuteronomy, and look how small those words are and thin those pages are. Hold that in your fingers. They would have had that memorized in Hebrew nonetheless, a much more difficult language. This would have been their primary training in religious school was simply rote memorization of the scriptures. Jesus goes to maybe the key passage above all that any Hebrew, any Jew would know from the youngest of ages. And he says to them, you do not know the scriptures. He wasn't meaning you don't know them, you couldn't recite them. He was saying you do not receive them, you do not apply them, you do not live them out. Jesus teaches a powerful hermeneutic for us, another big word. Hermeneutic is simply the way to study and receive and apply the scriptures, how to read it, what lens, how do we approach God's word, his scriptures. And Jesus teaches us something powerful here. While resurrection is not a a primary overt theme, he actually says it is very clear through God's story that he's a resurrection kind of God. He is the God of the living. He's a God of power. He's a God of life. What God does is forever. And that is the message of Scripture. We start with that. And when we start with the message of Scripture, the story of Scripture that's proclaimed in in an amazing, messy, masterful, mysterious way, but when we begin there, then we start to read every page and every passage differently. And that's what Jesus was teaching. That's what he was rebuking the Sadducees for. You know the scriptures by rote. You could pick out any verse. Well, they wouldn't have said it that way. And you could recite it and tell us what that means at a theological level. But you're missing the story of who God proclaims himself to be. Said maybe more succinctly, the scriptures... Do not reveal God as much as the scripture. Let's reverse that. God does not reveal the scriptures for us as much as the scriptures reveal God to us. And that's the hermeneutic that Jesus is teaching in his rebuke of the Sadducees, which should influence how we read and receive the scriptures. Everything in that must fit the broader story of how God has revealed himself. And love and resurrection are some of the primary themes that come out. Not just the rising of a dead person back to life again. There's very little of that through the scriptures, although some accounts, we don't need to look at them, but just a few. But primarily, life from seeming death. Newness and renewal out of nothingness, out of barrenness. This is a theme that runs powerfully through the scriptures and through the story And we're even told we can observe it 
in our creation, in nature, as we've been hinting at, we often do with our, with our love for greenhouse and growth and life and deep roots, new shoots and diverse fruit, we see this story run through scripture. We see it in the creation, right? God brings out of seemingly nothingness, barrenness. He brings forth life and light and abundance and fruitfulness in the garden. It's the first picture of who God is and what he does, right? So that then we just look into our world and we see it, especially this time of year. We see the new life coming out of, of dead ground, sometimes early, early in the spring, even still winter by the calendar. We see new life coming out of frozen ground. How does that emerge? We see the buds grow. We love, we love trees like the magnolias, which are still in bloom, that put forth their, their blooms before, they even leave, before the leaves even follow. They put forth beauty out of what looked like dead sticks. This is what God does. Unless a seed dies ultimately, right, falls off of the life source and to the ground and is buried, it will not emerge new life again. This is the way that God created multiplication and life. Jesus picks up on that very idea, doesn't he? We would say that that, that kernel or, or seed is, is not truly dead, but it certainly looks lifeless. Everything about it would say it's, it's been disconnected from life, but life is latent potential within it. Jesus said in John 12, 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it will produce many seeds. It can multiply. It can flourish. And he certainly is referencing his own life, but I think reinforcing a broader theme of who God is, how he's, how he's the, the resurrection God. He's the life from nothingness God. We see the same theme woven through just the story of God from creation to the flood narrative where life is spared, life is renewed through death. It's, it's, a, it's a renewal and a cleansing story. The, the first sign of hope coming out of the flood narrative was what in the beak of that dove that flew out? A new shoot, an olive branch representing the life that God was renewing on his earth. He's a resurrection God. When God made the first covenant with Abraham and Sarah, he brought life out of a barren womb. They were as old as death, as old as dirt. And God said, no, nothing will stop me from bringing life anew where it seems like there's nothing or there's emptiness or there's death. He brings the promised son, Isaac. He would do the same again for Jacob's wife, Rachel, from her barrenness, he would miraculously bring forth life. This theme continues that many of the prophets, so many of the prophets use various imagery to describe resurrection life, newness out of death. Famously, the prophet Ezekiel speaks of God bringing a heart of flesh, a new heart, new life in the place of a heart of stone. He speaks of God breathing his spirit upon dead, dry bones in a valley and life emerges. Life comes forth. This theme of resurrection runs through. Probably the most powerful pictures of life through death were God's redemption through the Passover, where his people were told while they were in captivity in Egypt to, to slay a lamb and take its blood and put it on the doorframe. 
that the angel of death would pass over them, thus imaging their rescue, their redemption, their resurrection, their rebirth. God was freeing them and delivering them, but through death, life came. And that would be a forever celebration and rhythm for God's people, and certainly connected to Jesus. And then in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, and through the temple, when God established the the sacrificial system, it was all about life through death, redeemed life, newness of life through the death of, of an animal. And that was a repeated practice for them. And clearly, Jesus comes and highlights his fulfillment of all of the promises of God, of all of the resurrection promises and theme of God he's been teaching on. Will we believe it? He says famously to Martha, the brother of Lazarus, as Lazarus has just died and they had been crying out to him to come and to save Lazarus before he died, but Jesus remained and Lazarus died. And Jesus would come, you may know the story, and he would call him out of the grave and it would foreshadow what was to come for him. And there was quite contention around that. But in John chapter 11, Jesus said to Martha, who was grieving, and had come to him, basically saying, why didn't you come sooner? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me will live and not die. Though he dies, yet he will live. Do you believe this? He asks that of her and therefore ultimately asks that question of of all. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? I think sometimes we emphasize the the dying part. If we believe this, we have no fear in death. He's he's the resurrection God. If we we die here, if these earthly bodies die, we will yet live. We we put our faith upon that. And true, true. But notice Jesus' emphasis is on the living part. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Whoever believes this will live. Not just someday, but right now. He's the resurrection God, reinforcing the resurrection theme throughout the scriptures. So yes, resurrection is kind of a big deal. We're just scratching the surface even of this theme. Perhaps the apparent exasperation of Jesus to the Sadducees is partly because it is it is so critical to the message of Scripture that these, these who should know better don't understand it. Partly because perhaps he's just tired of the constant, relentless challenges of the religious leaders. Hard to blame him. The Pharisees have come against him. The chief priests, the scribes, the teachers, all with a challenge to trip him up and to get him to stumble, looking for justification to arrest him at least or ultimately to destroy him. It makes sense. They're offended by his claims. This upstart, relatively young rabbi that's taking away the crowds, that's seemingly starting a new religious movement right from under our feet. Not only is he hitting their pride, but their pocketbook, so to speak. Their very livelihood was built on this religious system. And if he was saying it it should crumble, all of this should crumble, all of this will fall apart, he said, then we understand why they're coming against him with such force subversively, pretty soon, aggressively. They've, they've tried every measure they can think of, and Jesus has refuted them every step of the way with wisdom and with brilliance, with nonviolence. So they will resort to the last that they are able to. And within that week, as we will again remember, coming through Good Friday, they will arrest him, 
hurl false insults and accusations to work with the Romans to ultimately destroy him. Jesus had been teaching that very thing would happen. He was teaching the resurrection of life would come after his arrest and crucifixion. And that's what the Sadducees are hoping he will double down on, which is so manipulative because they don't even believe in a resurrection. You can just, this is the, the epitome of tongue-in-cheek. You can almost just hear the, the, the two Sadducees in the background sniggering as you read this passage, as they smirk on their, their face, as they, as they present this ultimately ridiculous hypothetical scenario before Jesus, throwing resurrection and new life in his face, basically. They're picking up on an ancient custom called leveret marriage, Lever from the, the Latin for husband's brother. That's simply where that term comes. If you've heard that term, and if you haven't, that can just float right out of your mind. But it comes from Deuteronomy 25, where, where Moses actually did teach that if, a woman, that if a woman's husband died and there was no child, there was no heir, then the brother-in-law would come in and be like a surrogate for the family to continue the lineage of his brother, that was part of it. Uh, honor to lineage and heritage and legacy was very significant in the Jewish culture. But even more primary to the whole story of God is reversing oppression. Women had almost no value, no personal values then. They could not even hold land without a man in place. That was, that was much of the world's culture, right? So the Jewish culture was actually very progressive, con- relatively but still very harmful to so many in a weak and vulnerable position. So if a woman has no heir, can't hold any land, that that widow is extremely vulnerable. So to bring an heir by the name of that that former husband would allow her to hold land, even through a baby boy, to maintain that that land, that homestead, that livelihood, let alone potentially remarry, have more children uh, to raise, to, to work the fields. So that was the intention of the law. It was one of mercy and one of compassion. That's what's taught in Deuteronomy 25. The Sadducees believe that. They come up with this hypothetical scenario where there's seven brothers and they all die and and no, no son emerges. Then what will happen, not just what will happen to the woman, which should have been the primary concern. She ultimately dies. Seems like years and years have gone gone by. But they're not concerned with her oppression or her weakness. They're concerned with a theological point to trap Jesus. Well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, Jesus? You can just hear the hypocrisy. And it seems to just incense Jesus. You do not know the scriptures, the whole story of God, the heart of God, the power of God. He's the God of the living. He's the God of life. This is where you're mistaken. You know nothing of life, let alone eternal life. Jesus knew the scriptures better than any of us, better than them. He knew the story of God. He could have pointed to any, any number of the passages that I highlighted and many more. He goes to a different passage. He goes to Exodus chapter 3 to rebuke them. Again, the passage that any Jew would have known at the top of the list, ultimately, God's encounter with Moses at the burning bush where God declares his redemption of his people and he declares who he is. That's where he names himself, I am, Yahweh. I am who I am. It's, it's his character identified for the first time. 
to Moses and therefore to his people. Any Jew would have known this passage. Jesus says to them, you do not know this passage. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of the living. They're still living. And you, you have missed it completely. That everything that God does is for life and life forever. It's who he is at his core. Well, at least we could say this. The Sadducees pinpointed the main issue, resurrection, as it always has been, has been for 2,000 years, knowing that they don't believe in a resurrection or an afterlife, and they're simply trying to maintain their own power and position, but they at least pinpoint the issue. Jesus, are you going to double down on this resurrection talk, that this is who God is, this is what you are going to do, because if you'll do it, no one will believe it. All of these crowds will disperse. you'll You'll be labeled a lunatic. That's exactly what he does. He had probably taught many times. We have it in Mark three different times. He proclaims to his disciples, this is what's coming. And they don't get it. They don't believe it. Even in this moment, they don't believe it. At his crucifixion, they don't believe it. They scatter. He's dead. It's over. Because no one believes in the resurrection. It's not natural. Sadducees were not fools. They felt like they had him here. No one will follow a man who believes in the resurrection and claims that he will do it. This is the dividing line. It always has been. For the Apostle Paul, it was preeminent. It was the crux of the matter. If the resurrection is not true, nothing else matters. If the resurrection of God isn't real, if God doesn't bring life from death, life out of nothingness, if that's not who God is, nothing else matters. Then this is the only life. An extended passage, probably the most famous passage, articulating on the resurrection as a commentary is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. The whole whole chapter is incredible. I'll read a a number of the verses because this is the issue. As we again head into another Easter week, we're always looking for those of us that have been walking with Jesus and have every day been trying to live and believe the resurrection. We once again, Lord, make it new, make it fresh, make it real, stretch us. We bring our doubts, we bring our uncertainties to this core crucial issue of our faith. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Everything that I've been articulating, just at a high level, Paul is saying the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, that's what he's referring to here because we didn't have the, the new covenant scriptures, the Greek scriptures. He's saying they all have taught crucifixion and resurrection. They've all been revealing this theme. It's plain as day. After he was resurrected from the dead, Jesus appeared to Peter. Now it gets practical. 
Now it gets real. And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have passed away. Last of all, he appeared to James, the apostles, and me. And Paul is saying when he's writing this, go find them. I'm one. Count me as a fool then. Talk to the disciples who are still being persecuted and killed because they're proclaiming that they've seen the risen Christ and they're not recanting to their own death. Almost every one of them. This is the crux of the matter, isn't it? Paul says, he goes on, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I've always wanted to believe that simply the ways of Jesus is worth it, even if there was no eternal life. It's the better way to live. But that's therapeutic deism at the end of the day. No relationship with a living God, but just maybe practical self-help to try to make life go better, this, this side of the grave. <clears throat> Paul is, could not be clearer. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's useless. Those who have fallen asleep, he uses that phraseology, are, are, are lost ultimately. Those who have died are lost ultimately. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than all others. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's gone first. We come after him. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through one man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Powerful words that certainly when they were first heard created a dividing line, not just from people that believed and those who didn't, but a dividing line through the very hearts of all who received. I feel like part of my heart says yes and part of my heart or my mind says no. It cannot be. And that's where our faith begins. That's where we start to walk in pursuit of Jesus, that we would come to know and experience the reality of the resurrection God, the one who brings life out of death, and every day continue that pursuit. Some days bringing more doubts than faith and other days standing firmly on that foundation of faith, shaking our head that we could ever have doubted. Do you feel that? Do you feel that tension? Do you feel that wrestling? God is a resurrection God. It's who he is and what he does. God, remind us of that again today. Remind us that you're the God of, of the living all you do lasts forever. Ultimately, I think any preacher or teacher or evangelist that tries to prove that resurrection will fall short. It must be believed. It must be the essence of our, of our faith that God is who he's claimed to be. Now, certainly those that were willing to die proclaiming they had seen and even touched the risen Jesus maybe give some credibility or hope but ultimately, as Jesus said, 
Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Blessed above all. Because that will be everyone who comes after those first few hundred who apparently got to see the risen Christ, even to eat with him, to touch his side as Thomas did. We have been born again in Christ, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is what God has come to do. This is who he is. In John 10.10, Jesus calls out his primary purpose, contrasting him to the thief, the enemy, who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly. We emphasize often the, the, the forever life after we die. Jesus emphasized the life now, extending into eternity. If I can summarize the gospel in four words, I think you've heard me say it before, it's these four words, live forever, begin today. Begin today. We've heard the message of life forever, of eternal life, I think often, repeatedly. Incredible hope, incredible. But maybe the missing part of the gospel for so many is the begin today. Begin again today. Renew again your journey of life and life abundantly in Christ and in the resurrection God. Living as resurrection people means we have a hope that the world is languishing for. And yes, it's true that we should have no fear in death. Ultimately, we're meant to live forever we will. And though however that happens, however that resurrection takes place, whatever our eternal bodies look like, there's incredible mystery. The scriptures are not clear. We're meant to have faith and to have hope. But that should transform how we live now, not just for some day that will be important when we're on our deathbed, but transforming how we live now, because no earthly thing ultimately has hold and ultimately will survive. Even the greatest things and highest things that we may value here and now will often will fade or be removed. This is how Paul could say in Philippians toward the very end of his life, as he's approaching, wondering, he's in prison, he's in chains, he's about to, to confront Nero, who holds his life in his hands, he writes to the Philippian church, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart, to be, to be done with this pain, to be done with this suffering, to be with Christ, to be renewed, to live the resurrection life forever. That's better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. There's still so much work to do, so much pastoral work to do. We even hear in Paul a wrestling, a struggling of how to live out his faith, of what it means to live now, regardless of our circumstances, and how to be faithful. We will always wrestle with this faith journey of belief. We will pray at times and God will answer, sometimes immediately, sometimes miraculously, unexpectedly. That grows our faith. But we will pray at times and God will be silent. Will that grow our faith? We'll pray for healing and deliverance and rescue and he will answer at times and heal and deliver and rescue exactly what we asked for. 
and at other times he will let us suffer and die. Will that grow our faith? Oh, how we long to be like the angels in heaven. Now, when Jesus said that, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God in that life, you'll be like the angels of heaven. He didn't mean in essence and in nature. We'll still be human, his creation, humanity. He meant like the angels in understanding, in perspective, in awareness. We will now have a category for eternity. It will, just not, it will not simply be a paradox. It will, will be like, oh, there it is. Obviously, paradox is simply a placeholder for truth. And that will become known and a reality for us. We will be like the angels in heaven. I can't belabor this point when he says, you will not be married or given in marriage. We have, totally, we have, we have two totally different responses amongst us. And we would respond totally different based on circumstances in our life. Some will say, praise God. My earthly marriage, marriage or marriages have been nothing but hard, pain, and full of strife. And that's going to be removed. Relationships, we'll still have full relationships and community with people. There'll be unity, there'll be harmony, there'll be joy, there'll be love. But marriage is a thing of the past. Praise God, that sounds like heaven. And others will say, that sounds more like hell. If that's heaven, I don't want it. My marriage is one of the greatest things in my life, the greatest blessing. Sure, it's been hard at times, but it, I, I can't imagine not being married to my spouse or if you've lost a spouse, being reunited in that way. And for some, I guess there's a third response. It's sad, sadness. It's grief. You've wanted marriage or longed for marriage or a, a godly marriage, and, and it has not come and may not come. And so hearing that, that that opportunity will pass or never be possible is grief, is sadness, it doesn't make you long for, for heaven. So we wrestle with Jesus' words. What we have to understand is that heaven is, is, is the elevation of all good things. It's the fulfillment of things. It's the betterment of things. Our view of heaven is too small. Scripture doesn't give us the best picture of it. So we've grasped at it. We put our own images and pictures on it, which we think are reality, which are not scriptural. It is better in every way. It's God's shalom. It's God's life. It's with God wholeness. There will be nothing lacking. We have to, in faith, again, walk that out, that God is restoring and bringing all new things. Could he elevate our vision of something greater? I often use this analogy of uh, television technology, right? You knew I was going there. If you've ever shopped for a new television in person, whether at Costco or at a, a TV store, and you're, you're trying to compare the, the 4K television to the 8K, the 65 to the 80, and you're like, I think this one's a little sharper or clearer, but I, like, I think this technology, this OLED, it seems pretty good. Well, how dark do the blacks need to be? Do I really care? And it's just mind-numbing at that point, isn't it? You put it in your house, like, yeah, that looks better than my last TV. That's fantastic. But wasn't, I mean, television technology is so incrementally progressive. Wasn't it the same in the 1950s when color TV was just coming out and you went to the show and you're like, oh my God, look at this. Can we afford it? Can we put it in our house? Never seen anything like it. But is this one a little better than this one? Let's compare. Now, if you were able to come from 2022 back into the 1950s into a television showroom and say, just wait, let me describe to you an 8K, 80-inch OLED technology television. There's no category for that, for that person in the showroom or even the salesman. There's no category to understand that. 
they would think you're an alien from outer space or whatever. Now imagine if you were to take that television, that 8K, back to the showroom in 1950. It would be overwhelming. It would be unbelievable. But it could become understood. The same brains were at work. Maybe not the technology behind it, but the vision of seeing something far greater. And then they would never settle for that box tube in the corner and the rabbit ears because they've had a glimpse of something far greater. I think too often we're living in 1950s TV showrooms and our highest category is what's right before us. And we have no category for what eternal life with God will truly be. God, don't lower our view of heaven and your great gifts, your amazing goodness to us. Raise, don't lower our view of of earthly things. Raise our view of eternal things, of heaven. Raise our faith in what you are going to do and the promises that you have made. But, alas, this message isn't primarily about someday, about what it's like to be, be like the angels and what that could mean. We would miss the primary point that Jesus is articulating to the Sadducees. You're in error. You are not living in the power of God. You are not living and embracing the scriptures, the knowledge of the living God who is a resurrection God, who influences life today, here, now, forever, who brings hope and who brings life. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He's come to give life and life abundantly. If you have never truly begun living that way, begin today. Perhaps you've gone through the motions many times. But if you've never truly begun living with the resurrection God, begin today. As we respond, receive communion as a tangible testimony of saying yes to the living God, which represents his death, his body broken in the bread, his blood shed in the cup for life. Say yes to him from your heart. Let that be your walking towards him, not for perfection today, not for complete understanding today, not for holiness today, not for a lack of doubt today. All of those will still be there. But a beginning, just as Jesus called the first disciples, come, follow me, be with me, and I will make you. I will change everything for you. I will transform everything. Your job is to leave your nets and come follow me and grow in me. What are those nets today? What is holding us back from beginning or beginning again the journey of faith. And for some of us who've been on that journey, and you resonate with that every day. Some days I come with all of my doubts. Sometimes I come with strong faith. We begin again today, life forever. We renew our faith again today, and we receive the gift of repentance, of returning and walking in resurrection. And what would it mean to this week be a people of resurrection as we approach Easter, the people we're called to be, of bringing renewal and newness where there is death or harm or emptiness or barrenness. Maybe it's to a relationship. Maybe it's to the hope of a friend or our own hope. Maybe it's work in our marriage or work in our community. Maybe it's an act of service. Maybe it's a religious exercise, something that has fallen or has died from us that must be breathed into life again. 
Maybe God would invite you to something to be renewed, to be resurrected, to join him in. Let him speak that to you as we respond. Ask him to reveal where you can partner with him as the resurrection God and extend that in the places that he has invited you to this week as we prepare for Easter, walking through Good Friday. Would you pray with me? Catherine, Tommy, come and prepare to lead us. God, grow our faith in our understanding of your power, of resurrection, of knowing you, the God of the living. Give us new life today. Give us renewed life today. May we long for heaven, but not simply be waiting for it. Let us experience a glimpse of it now and never be satisfied with anything less. We pray, we join you in your prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.